Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your god. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. I am your host and King of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and joining me this evening is someone who all of you are already familiar with, or at least familiar with his work. Uh, If you like the Dice Skull logo that I have been using uh, for the past year or so, uh, then you are definitely familiar with the work of one Mr. Andrew Kolb. He's got a new 5e setting based around the world of Neverland. Uh, so, Andrew, welcome to Rolling Bones. Thank you for having me. And thanks for mentioning the logo as well. I can't <laughs> believe it's been almost a year or over a year that you've been using it or that that like that it's been done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I, I believe it was December or January of or like December of last year, January of this year that, that we got that put together. So yeah, it's, it's been almost a year that we've had yeah, uh, the, the skull logo here. Great. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm happy to chat both logo design and Neverland, <laughs> whatever you'd like. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. So we're going to start this off the same way we start every episode of Rolling Bones. We are going to ask you these questions that everyone gets asked. Uh, so just to... Kick us off right here at the beginning. Andrew, how did you get into RPGs? Uh, so I'm actually like a relative newcomer. I, I'm actually like, in my opinion, in that I haven't been playing for 20 plus years. Uh, I started with the kind of like fifth edition, uh, like intro, introductory, like the Minds of Fandelver. Um, I guess like when it first came out, a friend of mine's cousin was running it. Uh, they needed extra players. I had read enough fantasy that my friend thought I might be interested in playing. Uh, and after that first night with the, I don't know if these are spoilers, with the dead horse in the middle of the road with the goblins, I was hooked. That was that was it. And then we could finish that. We did a couple of other adventures. We tried some homebrew stuff, and it's been that's that's and then history. That's it. Gotcha, gotcha. So you you've already answered you know what your your first game was fifth edition Mm. that was my first game as well uh so so we're both relative newcomers here as far as rpgs go i am just an obsessive because that's what i do when i get into things (laughs) how uh how many games had you played in before you started running adventures i had been playing for i think a full year maybe even as long as a year and a half before i started my own campaign and was that all one adventure or was that kind of stop and start across a few uh this was all one adventure i got extremely lucky in that my first gaming group stayed together for like three years that's great yeah Uh, 
especially early on too, like for your first or like an early adventure too. Mm-hmm. And we did two campaigns. One uh, was started by Muhammad, who's been on the show before. He was the the guy who pretty much taught me everything about DMing. We went from level one to level twenty in that game. And then in my game that I ran, we also went from level one to level twenty. So I got two back to back with the same group. Oh, wild! I uh, at some point I'll have to pick your brain about what uh, level twenty or even just kind of like t- kind of high tier adventure looks like, because uh, we've I think I've capped out at twelve or thirteen, which I think is still great and like has also been years of play, um, but. Even then, I still felt pretty squishy, <laughs> so I, I can't I can't imagine what level twenty would feel like. Just just one one piece for you, and then anyone else who's wondering about epic level in in fifth edition. Once you get past level fifteen, your monster manual is useless. Those okay. are good minions, uh, like. Obviously, you can't throw like five Tarasks at, at someone. That's that's going to be overwhelming. But the the boss monsters, the things that are supposed to be like your big bads, those are no, no, you you can't use those as a final boss when it comes to actual challenging monsters that are supposed to, you know, push your players to the brink. You're going to need to uh, create your own and really beef them up. Now, do you approach it as. Because I've I've read a bunch about kind of epic level play, especially in kind of like preparing for design. Um, the general rule of thumb being like not to take the things away from your players, but uh, to kind of like add new components. Did you find that that worked well or works well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you you can't once the once the jack is out of the box, you can't put it back in uh, with okay. players. Once you've given them something cool, you can't. You can't really take it away unless there is uh, like some kind of really good justification or there's something new that you can give them in exchange for that old thing. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, what? once once you have that super powerful character, Muhammad's character is actually a great example of this. He, the paladin in fifth edition once you get past level 10 the paladin is unstoppable so it it was just a matter of finding ways to continue to challenge the players to add something new to make them think uh so that their characters weren't just running through everything as if they were that like paper banner that's opened up before an american football game that the players run through right so you're being tested more as like, I mean, like you're, you're testing the character or the person sitting at the table as opposed to the sheet resting on the table. Like you're you're going to the human component of the RPG as opposed to the number crunching. Mm-hmm. Cool, yep. that's great. Yes, Elfie, I I will at some point do something. Uh, I I need to I need to talk to Nim about what she uses for spam bots. I I, I need to do that. My my auto mod on Twitch here. Uh, the other <laughs> last stream, I had to approve a comment because someone, I think, said the word scum, okay. and auto mod was like, "This could potentially be offensive. Do you want to display it?" And I was like, "Of course." He's not even calling anyone anything. He's just using that word. And then uh, 
this bot gets to just show up in chat trying to get me to buy followers. Of course, anyone listening on audio is going to have no idea what I'm talking about. We've got this whole Twitch chat here. You can join us live if you have the availability Mondays at 8 p.m. Central uh, to, to see as well as hear my voice and, and see my guests. Uh, so anyone listening on audio uh, know that that is an option for you and you will know what the uh, the auto, uh, not the Autobot, it's more of a Decepticon than anything else, but what that sure. thing is that I just referenced. So, of the games that you've played, Andrew, what would you say is your favorite? Uh, of the games that, so does this include games that I've run or exclusively as a player? Uh, games that you've run, too. Any, anything. Oh, okay. So I ran uh, an adventure. So actually, so uh, Tim, who you've had, Tim Mathias, who you've had on the show, uh, I ran an adventure set in uh, uh, Wonderland. Um, it was kind of like an, an OSR module that um, that was really fun. Uh, I kind of like heavily modified it, but um, they essentially, the adventurers essentially kind of like had to flee uh, a kind of a pretty precarious situation, literally chasing a rabbit down a rabbit hole and ending up in, in Wonderland. Uh, and it was fun to have literally all the players be in an environment where even those who had like read the monster manual, everything that you kind of like bring to the table as a kind of an established player was kind of evened out for the newcomers who were sitting there as well as the vets. Uh, and I think everyone kind of had a good sense of wonder not to like play on the title, but uh, it, that one I think still, still kind of like leaves the strongest impression. Hmm. So, yeah. Gotcha. Now was this module, uh, was this like a, a rework or an update of the Gary Gygax uh, dungeon land module? It is called, uh, I don't know if I can find the book, um, but it's called A Red and Pleasant Land. Um, I won't give too many spoilers because uh, in case someone wants to run it or in case someone might play in it. Um, but yes, it's, it's essentially uh, Wonderland or Alice in Wonderland with a number of kind of like new and fun twists. Uh, and then I added a bunch of my own. Um, so they, they kind of, yeah, it, it kind of stands apart from the kind of original Gygax stuff. Gotcha. Because cause back in the day, Gary Gygax, uh, I believe it was him, he he had a module called Dungeon Land, which was uh, like an epic level, um, an epic level module for, you know, very early OD&D. Uh, but it's it's Wonderland, but everything there wants to kill you. Sure. And the Dormouse is like a 20th level monk. And the first thing you encounter is the caterpillar, and he immediately tries to charm you uh, with with his hookah, and he he's like casting mind magic on you as he's talking to you. Oh, neat! It's have you do you do you remember what the kind of the thrust of the adventure was? Like, are you just trying to escape? Are you trying to save someone or destroy something? I think it's literally just like a mishap you you your party of like 15th to 20th level characters accidentally end up in in wonderland cool very on board with that that sounds great Mm -hmm. now in that fandelver game that you were playing um 
who was your first character? Who did you originally come to the table with? My first character was a, a dwarf cleric. Um, I had brought like a lot of kind of like video game, not baggage, but like a video game kind of expectations to the table. So knowing what everybody else or knowing that I was kind of the only kind of true newcomer figured, oh, a good safe way to kind of like uh, acclimate to the environment and, and make friends uh, both in world and out uh, was to be a healer. So that was my that was my approach. And now that I think of it, I don't know if I remember his name. I've I remember so many of my player names now that all of those are bubbling to the surface. And I I have the character sheet somewhere, but uh, I do not remember his name. Who's your most memorable character? Oh, uh, my most memorable character would be Midas, uh, who was a like a dragonborn. He was also a cleric. Oh, I played a couple of clerics. Uh, so a, a dragonborn cleric who was uh, kind of like a Gilderoy Lockhart for anyone who would have uh, read the, or watched the Harry Potter kind of series. Um, so a real kind of like a confident kind of oaf, uh, which was really fun to play. Very friendly, uh, but also not, there wasn't a lot of expectation for him to do well. Hmm. So right up my alley. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, JP in chat wants to know how often we play. Um, JP, I, I have played as many as three games at a time. Uh, which was at kind of the height of me running games. I ran a game on Wednesday, which is still going on. I'm just not running it anymore. I ran a game on Saturdays, which is on hiatus right now. And I played in a once a month Star Trek Adventures game, which is still going on right now. So as far as regular games, currently I am playing in one and then playing in or playing in one weekly and one once a month. Um, typically, I like to play or run uh, at least two at a time. Uh, what What about you, Andrew? How How often do you get to play or run? Um, I almost exclusively run games now. Uh, what I found is the, the best. Pardon? <laughs> I said, "Welcome to the club." <laughs> yes. Well, what I found is the best way to play D anD D is to get more people to know or like at least understand what D&D is. So, uh, or even just like like tabletop RPGs in general. So I found after that first kind of Fandelver adventure and subsequent adventures with that group, once that kind of went away, then that hole was left, uh, or uh, like a GM hole was left that I kind of stepped up and, and kind of tried to fill. Um, and that's led to me running five or six different games almost all for newcomers that wonderland game is maybe the one exception having a few people who have played before otherwise i usually play for for newcomers um so with that in mind right now i'm playing or running three three games maybe there are four one's one's kind of on a hiatus the other one goes weekly on wednesdays uh another one is kind of sporadic which is kind of when everyone gets a chance uh and then the uh, the last one is uh my original playtesters for neverland um we've been playing a game before neverland that then continued into playtesting and is now kind of ongoing so i think they're sixth or seventh level now in neverland um so i guess yeah i'm i'm running four games two are weekly uh and two are kind of sporadic gotcha gotcha 
And not to further interrupt, but I just want to let everyone know Ronan has joined me over here in the second chair. I'll show you all Ronan. He is lovely, lovely little half Maine Coon there. Do you have cats, Andrew? I do. They're not in the room. So I recently moved. So they are still just like exploring the house and finding every kind of spot to hide in and every box to crawl around as they can. So that's they probably won't show up for a couple of days before or at least until bedtime when they need to eat. So uh, I have two in there somewhere around the house. Gotcha. And uh, JP, just to, to to answer your question, prep is kind of a relative concept in in this game. Truthfully speaking, you only need to prep about 15 minutes for a given game. Um, sometimes you end up prepping way longer if you are designing a dungeon or something like that. Uh, for a good resource on how long to prep a game, I'm going to push you towards Luke Hart, uh, the, the DM layer on YouTube. He's been on the show twice. Uh, the second episode that we did, he talks about that a lot. You can also see a lot of that stuff on his channel. So if you are looking at expanding into running multiple games, uh, Luke is definitely a good resource for how to prep for games because that guy runs, I believe, four games a week. Wow. Yeah. He's a hustler. Okay. And uh, yeah, I I don't understand how he has the energy to do what he does, but he, he does it by thunder. <laughs> And sorry, Ryan, what was the question again? So specifically, how long do we prep for each of these games? Yeah, yeah. JP wants to know how long you prep for, for each game. Gotcha. Yeah, for, for I mean, like, it's tricky for Neverland because I wrote it. I I do almost no prep. Actually, that's not true because it's, it's really in response to what my characters or what my adventurers do. Uh, I do, like, keep detailed notes of what's happened and then kind of start to sort out what and how the world would respond to that. Um, but I think that's a, a good point. Like, I think maybe I spend an hour or expect about 15 minutes worth of stuff to come from that. Um, and then for any other adventure, it's usually just about plotting scenarios instead of, instead of plot points. Cause I find if I, if I write down a plot point or a speech never gets used, but if I have a sense of like, this is how they, this is what they want to accomplish. If the characters do something to help that, this is how they'll respond. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I think I think I think prep depends on how you're approaching the game uh, to give a non-answer. Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of running games and and prep, a lot of us who run games all the time, we have these NPCs that'll travel from game to game. Uh, do, do you have any forever NPCs? Oh, uh, I've I guess like a forever like a concept. Uh, which is I'd like goblins to be not trickier, but I think less inherently violent or aggressive than I think the, the 5e manual or I think games or adventures I've read and run would like them to be. I think I prefer them to treat them more like scavengers or uh, like nuisances that like if you really push them, they'll fight back. But Otherwise, they'll more likely scatter when you turn on the light uh, than kind of immediately attack you. Um, that Wonderland game that I keep going back to, um, 
all of my players would remember that the goblins were essentially kind of like uh, looters uh, or just like uh, like scavengers. They'd like kind of go into ruins or wreckage and just try to get anything valuable to sell. Um, and all had pretty heavy Brooklyn accents. Uh, so um, they they were immediately kind of like both threatening, but also like not like not to, it was it was a fine line and I found it, it worked well, at least for that game, which was kind of inherently silly or fun with that kind of thin layer of uh, extreme violence. So that was that's I think that's a forever a forever NPC. That's funny because all my goblins have hoser accents. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They they don't. Oh, well, I mean, I think <laughs> I think my group would probably wouldn't even notice if I had tried to do that. So <laughs> I do I do like a high pitched almost stitch from Lilo and Stitch voice for my goblins. Gotcha. My original goblins were the like Martians from Mars Attacks, where they just kind of go with the like ack ack, uh, mm-hmm. and I found that always kind of responded well, and also felt appropriately kind of like alien, but also just kind of other, which was fun. Is yeah, it was a fun fun group to run. I I want more wild also once more the Zuma goblin voice. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I could, and you carry conversations with it as well. Yes. Incredible. <laughs> I find any voice I do, I have to be comfortable doing for at least at least two or three sentences, either without straining or thinking it's too much. Otherwise, I, I can't commit to it. But uh, I yeah, I really respect that you are able to have a conversation uh, and not kind of like get hoarse after 30 seconds of it. Oh, no. Nobody said anything about me not getting hoarse. Oh, OK. Um, gotcha. There, there have been voices that I've committed to. And like 15 minutes afterwards, I've just been like, why did I do that? that and are they hurt. usually recurring? Are they recurring characters? They have not been recurring characters, oh, okay, but I, I gave, are, are you familiar with Tom Waits, the musician? Yep. I, I pretty much gave his voice to one of my NPCs one time. And afterwards I was just like, no, no, he's, you guys are never encountering him again. <laughs> And did they accept that or did they aggressively try to always find him wherever he was? They, they pretty much accepted it. Oh, that's good. Those are those are respectful uh, players that you have that you play with. It helped that he had his own shop in a city that they have not gone back to. So gotcha. He, he's just not around. I mean, if it's in the story or in the the setting that that seems sensible, then ev- then everyone wins. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Cool. Now, we we've talked around it and about it a little bit, um, but when it comes to GMing and playing, we all kind of develop our own styles, or you know, fall into different stylistic, uh, you know, genres. So, how would you describe your play style, both as a GM and as a player? Uh, as a player, and I will go with that first because I think it's probably shorter as I now have less experience as a player. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think as a player, I generally try to, and this was even before I GM'd, really try to go, what does the GM want us to do and how can I nurture that? Uh, so if there are breadcrumbs leading to something, I will always just gobble them up all the way to the candy house. Like I am, mm-hmm. I am there. Um and then as a as a like, kind of like social player in the game world, I, and I, may, I guess maybe that's also my answer, is I, I tend to be more of a social player. Like I think 
I'm not necessarily looking for the combat. I'm looking to chat with the NPCs and things like that. Uh, Midas, who I mentioned, the kind of dragonborn cleric, his thing was always finding the lone person in the bar, buying them around, sitting down, and and proclaiming that no one should ever drink alone, and then just trying to talk their ear off. Because uh, I think it just always led to something. Like, we always got a good adventure out of it. The other two would just sit back, let me do my thing, and then they'd go and kill the thing, and I'd take all the fame and glory. Uh, so <laughs> everybody won. So that's me as a player, as a, as a GM. Um, I think I try to set it up like a chessboard. Like I think I recognize it's it is them for not necessarily them versus me, but I have all these NPCs that are doing their own things, uh, and the players can interact with it how they see fit. So I try not to have like a specific path for them to walk down. Um, more so just kind of an open sandbox world that uh, will hopefully nurture whatever their players or play style uh, kind of pulls out of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know if that really answers how I GM. I think it's like pretty open-ended uh, and pretty lighthearted. I don't think I, I most of my adventures uh, aren't that serious or uh uh kind of yeah just like not that dark uh still dangerous but not uh but it's with a smile i think Mm. is how i approach it gotcha gotcha now this can be a tough question for people who devote a lot of time and energy to you know creating rpg content because we all have fond memories tied up with this it's why we you know focus so much on this game but if you had to pick a fondest RPG memory, what what would that be? Oh, so fond. So the the group who I run now for uh, running uh, for Wednesdays, um, uh, they were exploring a wizard's tower, and I set up three three treasure chest mimics uh, that the kind of wizard had kind of like. It, it doesn't matter the backstory. What matters was there was three players, three treasure chest mimics and i figured they would open one up sort that out open up the second like i i thought there'd be a like a a progression uh and had designed them in a way that they were kind of like almost like a goldilocks kind of different different flavors uh but i hadn't relied on them being such good friends and kind of a team that they said oh why don't we all open these chests at the exact same time they don't look locked so all three of them lined up in front of these three mimics and said on three and then and then it just became such a disaster of an encounter for them uh but also entirely something that they recognized was of their own choosing like it's not like i told them oh the only way these chests open is if you open them all at the same time like they absolutely and without any prompting said why don't we all stand in front of these three treasure chests and then flip the lids together as best friends do uh and that will always kind of stick with me as just a you know what you can't you can't plan uh anything as good as what your players will do Hmm. uh so that stands out yeah that that reminds me a lot of something that i did as a player a boneheaded move that i made uh we were in this dungeon uh that that my original dm muhammad had crafted and there were these three orbs and if you touch the orb uh, you know, they, they did a certain, a spell was cast in the middle of the room, 
uh, based on the color of the orb. And for some reason, I got it in my mind, we have to touch all three orbs at the same time. Great. We didn't. Other people were like, no, that's a terrible idea, because they saw Muhammad behind the screen being like, oh, you want to touch all three orbs at the same time? But uh, what I was told at the end was that basically three very powerful spells, including Fireball and uh, I think some kind of version of like uh, uh, Finger of Death or something like that would have been cast at the same time and we would have had to save for each of them, uh, basically taking half damage for each because they were safe for half spells. Gotcha. And do you remember uh, anything on the other side of the screen? Like, do you remember running a game and having a moment, not necessarily like that, but that really stands out for uh, for you watching your players or seeing your players do something? Hmm. That That is an excellent question. Um, trying to trying to think. I, I did recently run a dungeon with multiple layers uh, that were all kind of themed around the different colors uh, oh. in in Dark Sun, which is a an old D and D setting. That's kind of like a D and D apocalypse type thing. I won't get into Dark Sun too much on air because I talk about it so often. Uh, but there were a couple of times during that where the players really kind of you know like came together and and had some good solutions or uh, were, were about to fall for something that was like going to kill them. I remember the very last room was basically it was set up for them to perform a ritual to become a dragon, which is a, a big deal magically in Dark Sun. And they were like, how are we going to go through with this? We don't have the the necessary... Uh, steps to become dragons are we just gonna die here and they didn't realize that i'd kind of set it up so that something was going to happen to prevent them from dying and so they were just like we're we're gonna die here and they accepted this like they accepted their fate or that they had kind of like taken all these steps to get them to this reality they were like they were at their wits end, just kind of going back and forth you know what, what do we do what how do we how do we move this forward he's asking for something we don't have and so i was like one second here and then a portal opened up and it involved one of the characters backstories cool uh basically coming back to haunt them it was a railroad moment but it was one that uh, they really loved and and one that they'll have to deal with uh, cool. once we get back to that game. And it's, and it's also nice, too, for them to relieve, oh, thank goodness we got out of this jam, but recognizing that that has then set into motion a much bigger kind of series yep. of consequences that go, oh, maybe we didn't make the right call or maybe there wasn't a right call to make, which is, is always a fun realization to come to. Mm-hmm. And I will say, just just to throw my other group a bone here, they did a great thing uh, when they they were supposed to infiltrate this. Uh, he's basically the Sultan from Aladdin. If he were a pervert, they were trying to uh, infiltrate his castle, and they did it in the guise of being showgirls because one of them was a bard, and then the other two are, are female. So 
he came in and he's like, I'm a bard. I'm going to play this song. And these are my, these are my dancing girls that are coming gotcha. with me. And the way they did that, uh, set up, I, I think their favorite NPC in the form of King Saladin. Very cool. Uh, and if I may, I want to finish off that story of the mimics with, that was very early on, maybe like level two or three. Uh, and now they're approaching double digits and that same group. And they still talk about the, the night with three treasure chests. Uh, <laughs> that same group is in a room. Well, two are hiding. One is trying to uh, kind of parlay with a, like a, a Gorgon or like a Medusa. Uh, and she leaves and comes back and he's requested three drinks, despite obviously only being one person. Uh, so she brings the tray of drinks back and, and she leaves again. Uh, and he really thinks he's outwitted uh, or outsmarted this Medusa. Uh, and all the other two who are hiding come out and they go to cheers their success uh, not realizing that she had poisoned all three drinks, not knowing what was going on, but at least recognized, at least, at least we can, I can do this. Uh, so they, the three adventurers cheers their drink, all take a swig and all pass out uh, because I don't know why, but if you give them, if you give that group three of something, they will every time try to do it all at once, <laughs> which is, I mean, just like honey to me as a, as a GM of just, okay, I will set up these dominoes and you can knock them over. Yeah, uh, yeah. Players will never cease to amaze. Absolutely, yes. Three is a magic number. Something about it. I don't know what it is, and and I think maybe also smaller groups like you're talking about with the uh, kind of the infiltration. I think the wilder plans make. I think it's. I think it's just like any kind of like team meeting. The smaller groups always kind of take bigger risks because there are fewer people to kind of buff off or sand those edges. Uh, so no complaints about larger groups. Uh, I think they just play differently. And that's something that I've really noticed with groups of three or like less than like kind of five. Mm -hmm. So yeah. 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 Now to, to sink the ship a little bit, we, we do have a ton of great memories with this game. Uh, but we also, you know, sometimes you play with someone and you just don't click with them either personally or in their play style. And then sometimes people just don't behave at the table. And for the worst of these people, we have this term of that guy. So, Andrew, if you have a that guy story that you're comfortable sharing on the show, uh, please do so. Oh, I will I will share my, because I thought about this uh, in hearing or listening to your other episodes of, of what that would be. I think I was that guy on my first, in my first adventure of, of GMing. Like, I made the mistake of, uh, I'd given, this is actually that same group, the, the drink and treasure chest trio. Um, I had given one of the players like a, like basically like a, an identify pair of glasses that were almost like viewfinder. Like you click the lenses and then it gives you a bit of info. Um, and I made the mistake that someone was, or a, a creature was camouflaging or using a kind of a glamour. Uh, to pretend to be something else. And he thought, oh, I'm going to use these glasses uh, to kind of like see if something strange is going on. I hadn't prepared for that uh, and really wanted a specific moment of them kind of being tricked by this uh, kind of glamour. Uh, so gave him misinformation. And then when he was confused by it, I later explained that the, the magic was more powerful than the glasses were. Uh, and in hindsight, recognized, oh, I was just like, I really wanted it to go a certain way and like kind of were 
I wanted to have my fun and wasn't giving them their fun. Um, and that kind of suffered uh, because of it. So uh, it was a good like learning lesson of recognizing, oh, this is, I didn't make the right call there. Uh, so that was, that I think still stands out to me as, and recognizing player, player fun or player agency is important. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have a memory? Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off or also interview you, but do you have something that stands out either you or as someone else? Uh, so my biggest, that guy story is what's become, uh, known as the Deadlands incident. And this is, this was with a player who I played with long after this incident happened. He's a great player. Um, it was just kind of like a perfect storm of events and two characters clashing together and everyone kind of being distracted and running a new game for too many people at once. Uh, but basically, I was running Deadlands Classic, uh, not the Savage Worlds version, but just the original Deadlands, which, if you don't know, is a Weird West game uh, where... You know, you're, you're cowboys and stuff like that, but also there's ghosts and stuff out on the frontier. And I had a wanted criminal was one of the players that was playing. And then the player that ended up being that guy uh, was a bounty hunter. And so it was the classic moment of that's what my character would do, where I was bringing everyone together and instead of, you know, coming together, because this is a one shot, we need to get to the good stuff. The bounty hunter decides he's going to bring in that wanted criminal. And it did not go well in the PvP for the bounty hunter. Yeah, that's tricky. And at the same time, he, he had brought a date to the game. This was her first role-playing game. Deadlands Classic is not the first role-playing game anyone should ever play. As much as I love all versions of Deadlands, not that's that's not your first game. Don't don't let that be your first game. Um and they they had taken the poker chips that I had, which are important to the mechanics of Deadlands, and they were like throwing them up in the air, just kind of being goofy with them, and they kept losing my poker chips. It's hard. That's a, yeah. that's a tricky one. <laughs> and this was someone who I was already friends with, uh, who, you know, I played in other games with. Again, great player, great dude. He's been on the show before. Um, but it was just this one night, this this one event. I was like, why why are you acting like this? Yeah, that's hard. And I mean, and like I said, or like you said, we've we've all been, or it, it happens. Sometimes you're that guy mm -hmm. uh, or that person, and then you just have to kind of hopefully grow from that. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, that's hard. That's hard. Mm -hmm. Did you find all your poker chips? Yes. Yeah, we Great. eventually found. It took it took the person whose apartment we were in moving out of that apartment, but we eventually found all the poker chips. Okay. Okay. So this is the last of these introductory questions before we dive headfirst into Neverland. Uh, this question flummoxes a lot of people. The answer can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. Uh, but if you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Oh, I think it would be uh, the, like, just have fun. Like, it's, it's, I mean, have, it's, it's all fun. 
I think that's a, something, something to that effect. And during the twenties, I thought about this question, and now I'm completely blanked on what I was going to say. I should have written it down or done a drawing. <laughs> but I think now, where I'm feeling in this moment, uh, and what we've talked about is uh, something about like sharing in the fun. Like I think with games, I think in life, just kind of like I don't know, share the fun, share the fun. That's what I'm landing on. Absolutely. It's How good are you? Where are you? Where are you feeling right now? Because I'm sure you think about this, or have multiple shirt ideas. Hmm. I have not answered this question in a long time. My my old standby was a picture of Jesus wearing a Santa hat, carrying a rifle that says "War on Christmas" with a question mark. Okay. Um, I I'm not sure where I would land right now. Um. I, I might have to go with that old standby answer because it's it's a beautiful image, but I I think just just kind of based on um uh, what's been going on in my world right now, I think I would have like a cartoon like cartoon depictions of swear words like you see from uh, the Tasmanian devil or just like from, yeah. from newspaper comics over top of someone or j- just over top of a hand holding a miniature with another hand holding a brush. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Cause if an Elfie can attest to this, if you've ever witnessed me painting in person, it's, it's almost like that. Is it the sort of thing where someone's questioning whether or not you're actually enjoying the experience? Yes. Like, is it okay? Yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah, it's it's me constantly going. Ah. Now, do you ever question whether or not you're enjoying it? Like, do you do you reflect on that while you're painting, or does the kind of like joy afterwards negate anything that's happening while it's happening? There have been a few where I've definitely questioned whether or not I'm actually having fun doing this. Okay. Uh, most of the time, by the end, I'm like, you know, this turned out okay. Uh, but for 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 a couple, uh, and a couple of them have been abandoned for long periods of time, or just like outright dunk this and rubbing alcohol, scrape it off and start over. I've been like, this is I I don't even know if I'm enjoying this hobby anymore. <laughs> fair. That's fair. Where it just it feels like it's it's somehow shifted into work, like into a, like a not an, like an unpaid job yeah. type thing. Yeah. Okay. I gotcha. And if anyone wants to know if editing the show, uh, back when I did audio or even like putting this up on, uh, YouTube afterward has ever resulted in me having the same questions about the show. The answer is yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> but for the most part, it's, it's fun doing this this way. But there have been a couple where I've been like, I don't even know if this is fun anymore. I think that happens with all hobbies. Yeah, I've definitely run into, uh, I don't know if I necessarily ask that question, but I will often ask like, why? How? No, I, what I ask is, how did I get here? Like, what <laughs> what did I do to lead to this interest or to lead to this stage or making these decisions that have now landed me looking at whatever I'm looking at? unhappy like baking mm. something where i'm like where where did i where did i go wrong or like this has been made dozens if not hundreds of times before and it's fine why is this time so different or why is 
me standing in front of the stove so different uh which i guess is the the exact same maybe it's just the optimistic perspective or like the optimistic lean towards Mm -hmm. why am i doing this yeah absolutely yeah Gotcha. Well, that is it for the introductory questions. Uh, so we'll from from here we're gonna talk about this this new Neverland setting that you have. Real quick though, I want to begin. This is gonna start with a statement and then transition into a question. But just for the interest of transparency, there are two uh, literary concepts, two classic stories that whenever they're referenced or brought up, my brain immediately shuts down and just goes, not interested. Okay. You've mentioned both of them tonight. Really? Yes, one of them is Alice in Wonderland. Okay, yeah. The other one is Peter Pan. Okay. So when when you initially brought forth this setting, I was like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do with this. Um, I, I have to say, though, upon upon reading through this, you've done some great things here to make this interesting and to, you know, kind of bring out what's interesting about this particular setting, that being Neverland. So the question here is, what challenges did you face in adapting something as familiar and even something as cliche often as Neverland into a setting for D&D and one that people would be interested in in visiting? Oh, this... <laughs> I, and I've not necessarily thought about this specific question, but I think it's something that I've thought about in general. I think being an art... Oh, I, I, yeah, okay. So I think being an artist or an illustrator first, like before kind of writing or game design, uh, and it actually, well, I've spent more time as an illustrator working than kind of anything else. Um, but a lot of that is often like either fan art or working with existing IPs or existing characters, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's really primed me to finding the line of how much... Do you want to see something new and how much do you want to kind of connect with the familiar? Um, And I promise this is getting like to the question, but I think what that means to me is I, I think the best kind of like fan art or the best homages or the best kind of interpretations of something existing um, keeps or kind of understands what made the original work and either adds to it or builds on it or kind of does the exact opposite and really kind of like flips the script and then through that contrast shows how either great the original is or shows it in a new light. Um, So with all that said, and maybe that's kind of being too heady towards what I've actually done here, my hope is with my interpretation of Neverland or what my kind of like mindset was, was what did I like about the original Neverland books that I read and films that I saw and what what was fun about it and retaining that and then building off of it. So I think what I always really liked about Neverland was kind of the, the weird kind of like magic and uncertainty. I liked the kind of different characters of having kind of the pirates and the lost boys and all that kind of like conflict on this Island, but it never really feeling that dangerous or like feeling that permanent. Um, So 
I really tried to kind of take that and distill it into a setting. Um, and also just kind of having all these kind of cool locations and places to explore. So uh, in this approach to Neverland, I think that's what I tried to keep was like interesting characters, a sense of kind of like discovery and whimsy, and then uh, a setting that kind of nurtures all of that. Uh, so that's, hopefully that's, that's what you're seeing in it. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's it. That's my long-winded short answer. Gotcha. Now to get into kind of the, uh, the nuts and bolts of what this is, it's, this isn't just a source book necessarily. It, it serves that way, but this is also, uh, as you describe in the book, a hex crawl mm. where rather than kind of the adventure being laid out as far as this is where you start, this is where you end. Uh, it's something where you are kind of gradually uncovering the different pieces of the story. Um, how did that conception of, uh, you know, dealing with the setting come about uh, in, in your mind? What, what made you decide to go with a hex crawl uh, type adventure setting over, let's say, just a straight up adventure? Um, I, so I'd read a number of a number of other books that are both like hex crawl. I mean, like I've read a number of adventures. I think to, to kind of put it concisely, uh, and what I gravitated towards most was um, a, a, a book that said, "Here are all kind of the pieces. Here's the kind of like environment. Have at it." Um, I think as a going back to your earlier question of like what I'm like as a GM, uh, I think I'm someone who, if I have a specific plot that I need to kind of work towards, it unravels. I never remember all the details that I need to get across or all the specific plot points. Like as a writer uh, at the at the table, it, I, it just it doesn't work for me. What a hex crawl does really well uh, when I started to read it and then also run other adventures uh, like it is that it it just made sense to me to have a sense of like, oh, whether the characters or the adventurers were stumbling onto this island or not, this is what would be happening. So the, the all the ants are crawling around the mound, whether or not they show up. Uh, and because of that, makes it a lot easier for me to run. I'm sure people will flip and say the opposite is true for them. And that's, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. um, but in approaching it this way, I found that um, it's, it is more flexible for more variety, like more types of play. So if you want to read through the book and you can see the different characters and you say, oh, this is Hook's grand plan and everyone will explore and find out eventually, then that works. Uh, but what I've also tried to do is instead of write a specific adventure from A to B, um, instead given them uh, all, the, all the pieces and the board and you can set them up how you want. Um, so hopefully the book is flexible in that, like it, it should be enough to give you something that like, so if you're coming to it going, oh, I'm not really sure what I would do with Neverland, you can look at this and go, oh, okay, this is the sort of game I would want to run in Neverland using these things. And I'd add this and take this out. So hopefully it's the kind of a flexible, uh, approach to writing a book. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> and then as for kind of where where neverland finds itself in this point uh so just just so everyone knows the the adventure seems to be set kind of after the events of the original peter pan story 
And it seems that, uh, you know, the, the familiar characters have taken kind of a dark turn without getting into spoilers uh, for, for people who want to pick up this book. Um, Peter himself seems to be in a lot of ways kind of inadvertently aiding some some greater evil that's at work on the island. And then Wendy, John and Michael uh, have have also kind of fallen into dark times with at least two of them uh, going down some some pretty dark paths that your players can can find and uncover. Uh, Was that your your intention to, to kind of say, hey, these familiar elements are present, but they're not exactly what you remember. In fact, they're a lot, a lot darker than than you might think they would be. And I think so going back to kind of like that kind of element of fan art or finding the the point of like, it's as much as what you want, but it's also enough that's new that it doesn't just feel like a kind of a rehash. That is kind of, a, I think, where my perspective or like where I'm trying to add something new. Like, I think if you go to Neverland, you expect to see pirates, you expect to see lost boys, you expect to see mermaids or fairies. Like there are elements that you would want to experience and those are all there. Um, but I think what would hopefully keep people around after they've kind of gotten past the the familiar is these new elements that seem strange or, oh, I like just assumed this, but something else is happening or there are these spiders around and what's going on with them and, and things like that. Um, but I think what I've done with the changes is hopefully reinforced or built off of the themes of the original book. Like the books were really kind of about families and at least my interpretation, families and aging and what it's like to grow up and kind of all these different stages of life. So what I've tried to do is kind of take those stages to, or those themes to not necessarily natural conclusions, but extend them into something into something new um so that way a group of adventurers aren't stumbling into the the island right as the curtain closes on the play or as the book ends like there's history between which also then gives the gm a way to uh fill in the gaps however they want like you you can i think there's enough to give you a sense of probably what could have happened but there's lots of room that you could build your own kind of chapters in between the neverland that everyone thinks they know and the neverland as kind of written or included in the book mm-hmm. absolutely yeah and and one thing that i will say for for anyone who's skeptical of this like i was initially um wh- one thing that really kind of you know drove me through this uh and and made me you know, interested in this this new setting, there is a kind of dark undercurrent underneath all of the familiar in this particular setting, uh, with, with not quite a true meta narrative, but something kind of hinting at at what you know, like a, a an overall meta narrative might be that that your players will uncover gradually as they move throughout the different regions of Neverland. And I really have to applaud you for, for putting that in because it's fascinating. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I think, yeah, and it's really great that you would see that too. Cause I think 
I think the book is flexible enough that like if you want it to be a fun, silly romp with pirates and mermaids, it's it's got all of that there. Uh, but if you're running, I guess like my hope is that the setting can work for if you're playing or running a game for uh, a group of 10 year olds. It also works if you're running it for a group of 30 year olds. Like I, I think the nice thing about it and what I think what I've always liked about Neverland is that uh, reading it as a kid, I would really got one thing out of it, like the fun, the pirates, the whimsy, and then at growing up going, oh, Peter doesn't want to age or like is unwilling to change. And what does that mean? And why this hesitation to grow up or mature? Like, it's just, it's, it's, I think, and obviously I'm working on the backs of giants that uh, the, um, the original work had those layers that I'm just kind of building upon. Um, but uh, I think that's hopefully why it's connecting uh, or like that why it's connected with you on one level and can connect with someone else for the mermaids and the pirates and the, the lost boys uh, who I also run kind of like the Brooklyn accent and goblins. So. <laughs> gotcha. And, and one thing uh, that, that we need to mention here, uh, in addition to writing this, you've also provided the art for it. And again, anyone, uh, you know, f- familiar with my logo and, and Tim's logo, you'll, you'll see the, uh, the, the unique style that, that Andrew has. Uh, but with these creatures, uh, some of which are familiar, some of which are new, um, this, this style that you, that you bring to this uh, the the kind of like geometric style is is really the only way I know to to talk about it because I don't know how to describe art, but it's it's very cool and very interesting for this book. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, there's and I it's tricky because I also recognize there's not necessarily a couple styles, but there are kind of like tone illustrations in some of the chapters which feel more like the kind of early concept art for the kind of like fifties, maybe sixties, but like the Disney Peter Pan um film but then for the characters or for the npcs and monsters i tried to do a bit more of a realistic approach so that way hopefully if you're holding the book and you need to show your players what the thing looks like you can hold it up and it has enough clarity that they should understand what it what it is um but i also kept it all black and white one to kind of keep it pretty straightforward but two because i think shadows play such a big part in uh, in uh, the Peter Pan books that uh, I wanted to kind of play off of that concept in the artwork. So there's a lot of kind of like harsh blacks or harsh shadows in the artwork as well, uh, which I don't know, maybe everyone already noticed or no, no one did and, and it's, it was just for me, but it also kind of helped drive the aesthetic. So I appreciate that you picked up on that too. That's great. Mm-hmm. And for anyone wondering uh, the, the, Fan favorite characters, you know, uh, Wendy, Michael, John, Shmee, Captain Hook, Peter, they are statted. Uh, so when your players inevitably decide that they are going to murder Peter Pan, they can certainly make that attempt. They can certainly try. <laughs> yeah, I tried to keep the book as... Uh self-contained as possible like you could take monsters from another book and put them onto the island if you thought they were appropriate i like i have no issue with that um but if you 
if you have a game system, like it, it, it leans towards 5e, but it could, it could work with any number of systems, um, that if you have a game system in mind, it should be pretty self-contained. Like the book should have enough setting, character, plot, all those things for, uh, for you to run an adventure. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, without giving too much away, uh, Queen Mab is also statted in this book. So uh, if you want to kill her as well, Godspeed. You can certainly try. (laughs) (laughs) But no, one thing that I really love about what you've done here, uh, specifically with the crocodile, uh, the crocodile is basically a kaiju, and I love it. My goal is, and not to not to go to specific plots, but I think I really like the idea at some point, and my my playtesters haven't even run into it yet. Um, but I think the visual of kind of like the the birds flying away, you not knowing why, and then all of a sudden out of the horizon or kind of like out of the water emerges this kind of great hundred, three hundred feet long, uh, kind of essentially Godzilla, is just very exciting. Uh, so, and also inspired by, uh, cause a lot of the times it just kind of sits mouth open as it suns on the beach. Um, also inspired by, uh, Lord Jabu Jabu from Ocarina of Time, uh, for those Zelda fans, mm-hmm. uh, which should also give you a hint of some things you can do with the crocodile, um, for anyone who's played that video game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, uh, just, just looking at the stat block, if if your players decide they want to go go one on one with the crocodile, uh, again, Godspeed. <laughs> I I uh, the so my playtesters know this. The island is dangerous, uh, and I think and because I have a lot of random tables and truly roll random encounters, like when they explore a hex, whatever they find is whatever they find. Um, that they know that, I mean, this could be something that they could easily fight. This could be something that could easily kill them. So they kind of have to assess what they're going to do. And I obviously telegraph it that like, I mean, a, a hundred foot long or multi hundred foot long crocodile is go- is probably not going to have 50 HP. Uh, but uh yeah, it's a it's a dangerous island. Uh, you got to make friends to survive it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, moving moving away from the actual contents of the book here for just a second, we'll we'll get sure. back to that in a second. Um, what one thing I wanted to address because we've had uh, people on here, you know, from from this particular publisher before. Uh, th- this is a product of Andrews McMeal Publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so how did that come about did they uh did they approach you as you were uh developing this uh like how, how did that connection uh come about no so because my background is in illustration um i am more accustomed to kind of the publishing world of like picture books and chapter books and like things of that ilk um so i have like a, a literary agent that i work with who like when I have ideas, uh, she will help me kind of like hone the the concept into something that uh, we can send to publishers. Um, so I had played enough uh, tabletop RPGs that I was like, I would like to try my hand at this. Um, so any just like the picture books that I've I've had published, I like made a pitch had a number of ideas and, and kind of said, this is what I'd like to do. Uh, and then she and I worked together to find the right fit. Uh, and 
Andrews McNeil was the right fit. They they saw something in it. And I mean, I don't really have, like, it's not like I have a blog dedicated to D&D or to RPGs to show kind of my history in the in this kind of part of the world. Um, so they really, I don't want to say take a risk on me. Like, obviously they could see something in the book that they were on board with. Um, but I really appreciated that they, uh, yeah, without a lot of kind of D and D experience or like RPG experience, we're we're keen to to kind of work together, uh, and they were they were great to work with. I know you mentioned like I did the illustration and the the writing, um, but they like were totally on board with me designing it how I wanted to, and did because my background is in graphic design, so like I was like this is how I think the pages should be laid out so that way it's like easy to use, and because I GM'd enough, then I had a sense of what I would want to have at the table in front of me in the book. And they have great experience with the, with the publishing side of things. So they knew what paper and the binding and all these things that I don't know. Uh, so it was, a, it was a very cool collaboration and uh, yeah, yeah. All great. And whether they're listening now or not, I would say it the exact same way. Mm-hmm. And, and because of that Andrews McNeil connection you've worked with an alumni of Roland bones before, uh, the the guy who created Zweihander and you know has been on the show before was kind enough to even send me a copy of the game, Mister Daniel Fox. Uh, so so how how involved was Daniel with the the process? You know what what was it like working with him in, in this particular aspect? Uh, Daniel and like the whole team were great. Daniel was great because obviously he has the expertise and experience in. Uh, in balancing systems and approaching kind of game design in general, um, but also was generous or kind enough to kind of let me not let me flounder. I think what it was was I'm like I essentially swam out to the deep end on my own, and every once in a while I would need just a little bit of a lift up, and he was always there to help with that. Um, but also gave me enough space that I could kind of explore on my own or or um, find my own way. Uh, so it was a it was a it was a collaboration that was, I mean, like I loved it. I was, he's a great resource um, that really gave me a lot of space to kind of explore this on my own, um, but was always there whenever I needed any help. So, uh, I mean, yeah, if I can ever make a recommendation to work with him on a, on a book, I would say hundred uh, percent and the whole AMU team, they were, they were really lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and from my understanding, um, Daniel really kind of created the RPG uh, line at Andrews McNeil. They're, they're kind of RPG publishing, or he was the the first, because they approached him after kind of the, the mega success that Zweihander was in Kickstarter. Right, right, right. Yep. Yeah, and um, I... I don't know where I fell as far as the timing of the pitch, um, but I do know that, like, it was still pretty early on in after him joining AMU or Andrews McNeil and kind of going dead in this direction with games. Um, but uh, I mean, it's like they had done it for a million years by the time I was working with them. So uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, they, they were great. Um, and uh, I think are pretty established in it now. Like I think, I think they published a number of books. Like I saw a couple, there was like one to choose your own adventure. They've done a bunch of books uh, in this kind of world now too. Uh, and I mean, hopefully I can 
if I can do more books, if they, if, if we get to that point, uh, then, um, hopefully I could work together with them again. Uh, cause yeah, they, they know their stuff. They know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, I mean, like you said, this has not been going on very long. When, when I spoke to Daniel, uh, just, you know, just over or just under a year ago, uh, this was all just recently coming together as far as them putting together like an RPG division of Andrews McNeil. And uh, now, you know, the the Grim and Perilous stuff is coming out through them right now. They're doing that 1776 mm-hmm. Kickstarter uh, within the Grim and Perilous universe. And then we have this book as well. Uh, so th- they're really kind of basically putting their money on the table with all the other major RPG publishers and saying, look, we've been doing publishing for a long time. Uh, we can do this and do it professionally too, which is interesting and cool in that no other, you know, big mainstream publisher is really putting out proper RPG content, uh, the way that they are. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it's interesting to see, like, I I think it's also an, an important reflection on, or like a good, a good reflection on the hobby in general to say that others outside of the kind of like old guard are, investing in this too uh because i think that also means that i don't (laughs) i don't want to say like i don't think it's going anywhere but i think it means that everyone is on board that this is going to continue to be a hobby that people will continue to uh kind of invest in for years to come it's not a kind of a flash in the pan from the first season of stranger things like i think it's it's something that even if that's what sparked it it's it's got enough teeth to keep people around uh, and if other publishers are on board with that, then all that means is that there's more books out there for people to choose from. Uh, and I'm, I'm really excited about that. Like, it's very cool to be a part of this. Uh, and like, yeah, working with them kind of at these early stages is, is very exciting. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like my, my biggest hope from all of this is that, you know, companies like this who, who, and Andrews McNeil is completely set up to do something like this. If you could get an RPG that's kind of specifically targeted at kids and then sold in book fairs, yeah. uh, you know, like, like Scholastic does, you know, if you could get stuff like this into the hands of kids, uh, you know, where, where they are, uh, you could have that, that new audience of RPG fans that really, you know, our RPGs haven't been kind of a kid's product since the 80s. And I feel like that's where a lot of people really got hooked and really fell in love. And it seems like you guys are completely set to to do that all over again if if things line up correctly. Well, and I think the the thing is, is that those who were kind of like kids in the 80s are now having children who maybe are playing with the adults in their life. Um, but if they have families, then not to specifically sell Neverland, but I think what I'm seeing now that it's been out for a couple of weeks is a lot of people going, Oh, this is great. I'm going to like run this for my children and their Mm -hmm. friends or like my friend and his kids and my kids is like, it's a kind of like a good way to kind of bridge the gap between the wants and needs of an RPG player as an adult and that as a, as a child. So, uh, if that's if that comes to fruition, if that's a game that happens, then that's, that's it. That's all I could hope for out of the book. 
Um, and I think would be good, great for the hobby too, not specifically just this book, but I think more young players uh, to kind of keep, keep that spirit of adventure alive. Yeah, you could, you could definitely uh, take this book and, you know, fifth edition is an easy enough system to teach to just about anyone, kids included. If you have a kid who's super interested in Peter Pan, maybe they just saw the Disney movie for the first time, uh, you could very easily transition them into, hey, you like Neverland and, and Peter Pan so much, let's let's play this game. And, and then you've got potentially an RPG fan in the making. Yeah, because it doesn't need that much tweaking to uh, to not strip away, but to uh, alter the tone to suit the audience. Like, and I think any kind of uh, GM, even new, would be able to easily adapt that. Uh, so yeah, if there's any sort of kind of overlap or carryover from, I read the book in school and now I want to kind of literally be in that, well, not there, but like play in that world. Oh, that's, that's the dream. That'd be, I mean, as a kid, I would have loved that. I didn't even know that RPGs like this existed, but uh, to, to know that I could have gone from a, a world that I read and then actually get to play in it. That's, that'd be, that'd be the best. Hmm. Yeah. And, and one thing um, to, to get back into kind of the, the verisimilitude that you've created uh, with this book um in addition to the comprehensive list of these are the things that are in Neverland, these are their stat blocks, you've also created a a, a calendar and a uh, like a time system within Neverland that I find very uh, fascinating uh, for for I, I guess kind of what it means for the meta narrative, especially when it comes to encountering the crocodile. Hmm. I found so. Have you like and uh, have you run a hex crawl before, or have you run like a like a, a like yeah, either a hex crawl or a point crawl adventure in the past? Uh no, not a not a true one. Oh, okay, because I and I found that and before this and maybe one other game, I hadn't really either. Um, but I found GMing one of the trickiest things I had found in, in balancing it was like how much time is all this taking or is this entire plot that we've been playing for two years happening over the course of six days type thing? Like, and I think uh, the nice thing about having a calendar or a strict, like if you move here, it takes four hours type system um, is that it gives a sense of, of time progressing. Like I think my, my adventures have like my playtesters have been on Neverland for a month. Um, but so much has happened in that month, but they feel like, oh, we've been busy and we need to take some downtime. So they will spend a couple of days that will just breeze past. Um, and so because of that importance of time, uh, both for me running it and for the Island of Neverland, I really wanted to make sure that there were not consequences, but things tied to time. So things that only happen at night, things that only happen during the day, uh, things that happen at this time of the month, things that happen at the end of the month and so on. Um, so I'm glad that that's also kind of stood out to you because I think that's something that was important to me, but I now kind of take for granted. So it's great to hear. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the, the one, 
and I again, I don't know if this is a true hex crawl, but one, one thing that I've wanted to do for a long time is run the Red Hand of Doom from 3rd edition. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, but I'd be running it in 5th edition. Th- that's one where there, you know, you have a large map, there's lots of hexes to explore, um, and, and, you know, uncover... The, the different things going on there. So, uh, you know, seeing this in your game and, and how, you know, you've put so much emphasis on time and keeping track of it, that will be helpful even if you're looking at running something like Red Hand of Doom or another Hex Crawl. Uh, or even if you're running a West Marches game, time is also important in something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it also, and because the island is really set up with a number of, I also keep looking this way because I'm I, like have the book over here for anyone who's watching. This is what the book looks like. Um, for the audio only, I just held up the book. Uh, so because the island is set up with a number of kind of like conflicting factions, uh, and because it's a pretty big island, time I found, or and with my playtesters uh, or my adventurers, time also plays a really important role when you have and i also set up some encounters this way where they'll say okay we need to meet here in four hours or we need not uh, we need to meet here in a day so you can do whatever you want before that day but you also recognize you have to literally move to the island in that time or to that part of the island in that time um so it really also gives them agency to say one how are we going to get there but two what are we going to do between now and then uh, which again, I think goes back to kind of, I would rather my players have as much agency as possible and make as many decisions as possible because it's less work for me. And also they come up with way better stuff than I ever could. Uh, so yeah. I, yeah. I'm glad that the time is, is something to take away from this and apply to any other number of games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just kind of in general, and and I'll do a full comprehensive review of this on the channel uh, in in a couple of weeks. Uh, but just to give people kind of an overall uh, recommendation, uh, if you're looking for you know a an immersive world uh, with its own kind of rules and and own weird way of working uh, that that your players can get really lost in and explore. Uh, without kind of a rigid structure to it in the order that it would be explored this is this is the game for you uh, because it takes the familiar idea of neverland and it gives you all kinds of different tools to play with um, ways to to get your players involved and uh, even difficult choices that your players may have to make over the course of the game as far as you know who who were you working with who do you befriend and who by extension do you make an enemy out of? That's lovely. <laughs> Very kind of you to say. <laughs> I am I'm speechless. Well, yeah, I mean this this is a this is a great product and I'm I'm glad that you were able to do this. And again, this is coming from not necessarily a hostile point of view, but someone who ha- <laughs> is is often not very impressed by people uh, trying to play in the Neverland sandbox. So, and if I may pick your brain, because I know you also mentioned Wonderland too. Mm-hmm. What is it about these two properties that kind of flip off the same switch 
And, and I don't take this personally, so mm-hmm. please speak candidly. Just what is it about those two that say, eh, it's not for me? Uh, for Neverland, or just actually, sorry, for, for Wonderland, we'll start with Wonderland. Um, a lot of Wonderland stuff, I feel like, ends up just being shorthand for I'm young and quirky, okay. which are two things that I don't have a lot of time for. Okay. Uh, like... Every time someone mentions Wonderland, I just picture like someone's Facebook with a picture of Johnny Depp's Mad Hatter saying we're all mad here. And I'm just like that sums up everything that makes me hate uh, like like people who think quirky is a personality. Gotcha. Okay. And then for for Neverland, honestly, um, and again, I think I might have been born an old man. Uh, okay. if, if you ask my wife, I am definitely like the world's youngest old man. I have very little patience for the concept of not wanting to grow up. And it's purely it's a personal thing, uh, but getting getting caught up and I want to be a kid forever. Uh, for, for me, I'm just like I, I again, I have no patience for that. So. Not dwelling on that particular theme or not, you know, not not making that the central focus of everything really is a plus in in this particular uh, in, in in this settings uh, favor that you you don't necessarily have to spend so much time on. I don't want to grow up. And again, this comes from people who don't get the point of the actual story that you know, holding that view is bad. It's people who just kind of use that as shorthand for, I want to be young forever. I want to be Peter Pan. And you're like, no, you, you don't, no, no, you don't get it. Right. It's like, uh, I, I always shake my head at the, every interpretation of, or every book cover for Lolita that I see, uh, is always just like, I don't know if you've read this book or if you know what the author was going for, <laughs> but this doesn't, I don't think this is the right cover choice, but that's that's a whole, that's neither here nor there, but I, I appreciate that perspective. And I'm also relieved to, to know that, like, I don't think I did that with this book. Like yeah. that wasn't even a kind of forethought in my mind. So hmm. great. Uh, and now if I try to approach Wonderland, I will also try to make sure it is not strictly quirky and young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, there's, there are interesting things. One thing, and and this is just me being purely biased because I'm a huge Batman fan. The idea of Wonderland that is played with in that universe, where the Mad Hatter is straight up a predator. Um, oh yeah, okay. That that's something that I find interesting. Um, as far as, you know, some of the speculation about Lewis Carroll himself, some of the undertones within the book, uh, there, there's all kinds of weirdness uh, and, and like subtle creepiness underneath Wonderland that is sometimes played with uh, in a very smart and interesting way. And I enjoy that. But a lot of times it's just... I'm weird and quirky and slightly off kilter or I'm kind of straight up psychotic and they just use like Wonderland as a shorthand for all of that. It's, 
Right. It almost seems like, and this is extremely reductive to say this, Wonderland often comes off as hot topic the book to me. Oh, that's what I thought you were going to say yeah. earlier on when you were saying about the quirky. And I was like, oh yeah, okay, mm-hmm. I can, like, I can see that. It's like yep. striped leggings, uh, and I think not to say that that's not appropriate or an interpretation of uh, Wonderland, but I, I appreciate what you're saying. Like, it's, it's nice to have a variety of interpretations from the source material mm-hmm. um, because I think if you only ever get one, one approach, then it can kind of grow stale. Absolutely. Gotcha. Okay. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you kind of sharing yeah. <laughs> what it is about those two. Uh, Cause I mean, I love them both, but I also don't see them the same way as what you've described or have the same takeaway. Mm-hmm. So that's also, that makes sense too. And I, I will say about, about Wonderland again, those two live action Disney movies just kind of calcified that in my head. I would, I, I mean, this is also where, yes. I, so as an artist, this is also where it like becomes a question of like how much is, the source material and how much is you as an artist using it as a platform for your voice. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm nowhere near Tim Burton's level of, I, I get, we are indifferently. So I will not comment on his interpretation of Wonderland. Uh, but I think it just, it's, it's, it's something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, I will, not like full on comment. I'm not, I'm not going to say like Tim Burton's a hack or anything like that. I've enjoyed his work before. Uh, I, I will say, though, in doing Alice in Wonderland, Tim Burton, you you were not reaching very far. Uh, it, it felt like Tim Burton. Trying to make a Tim Burton movie in a weird it, it felt very, very meta. Like I, I'm, I'm going to not try as hard on this because this already seems like a Tim Burton movie. So I'm just going to just put my Tim Burtonness on it. It, it didn't feel like he put the full effort into that particular project. Yeah, it's funny. I don't, like I, I can't even imagine what it's like working on a project of that scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will, I will also say to bring it back to kind of what we were talking about earlier. I think his earlier movies are probably movies where he had an adventuring party of three. So like mm-hmm. wild choices were made and it's maybe a little more scrappy. And I think that connects with a, a group. Uh, whereas I think as, as you kind of get more successful, I think that's where it gra- moves towards a, a bigger adventuring group where it's not necessarily designed by a committee, but I think there's, there's more opinions kind of going into the mix. Uh, so yeah, I, I can only imagine what it's like. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And then to have, you know, the mouse over top of all of it is, yeah. Fair. Yeah, that's fair. Cool. So, uh, I mean, just kind of leaving my hangups about Wonderland aside, again, I'm I'm so glad that this is out there uh, for Neverland, uh, you know, presenting something cool and interesting that, you know, a lot of different people who can approach this setting from a lot of different ways and and discover different things at different times as they crawl through these hexes. I think you've done a great job here. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about this uh, further on Danishes and Dragons specifically as I review this in depth. But uh, for the time being, I, I have to say, if if you 
love Neverland or are interested in a, a Neverland RPG, this is a buy from me. Oh, that's that's great. Thank you. Absolutely. And I look forward to, if I can come up with a, a Wonderland setting, I look forward <laughs> to us discussing it and seeing where that where that where those chips fall. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what I like to do at the end of every episode is just turn over uh, the, you know, the floor to you to promote anything you've got coming up, anything you want to talk about. Uh, so, you know, this, this time is yours. Anything you want to discuss or anything like that, go for it. Oh, I mean, like we've already talked about it. I think, I think Neverland is the is the big thing that like it's and it's something that I'm like really passionate about. This is the first book that I've done in this world. I mean, like I I published picture books. If you like search my name in a bookstore, it'll it'll come up with a bunch of stuff. But this is the first thing that is something that I actively use after it's done. Um, so I'm I'm really proud of it. Uh, so. I, that's all I would suggest. And then if you do check it out, message me on Twitter or Instagram, share it or talk to me about it. If you have any questions, I've already answered a bunch of stuff or like chatted with GMs about stuff uh, online. That's it's ideal. This is ideal. Talking more D and D or more RPGs with people is all I want out of this. So uh, that's it. That's my time. Absolutely. And uh, you, you're one of those lucky people who's gotten the same tag on multiple social media. So both on Twitter and Instagram, you are at Colbizneat. You got it. Mm-hmm. So uh, and every and everywhere. Like I think if you search Colbizneat, that should be where it is so far. Absolutely. So Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Uh, you know, I, I appreciated actually getting to talk to you after you know having corresponded with you purely over email. This this was a, a ton of fun, uh, you know, to talk about this this RPG that you've put out here. And you know, I hope that we get to see more work from you in in the future. Oh, thank you. I mean, like if you start more podcasts, then you uh, hopefully we will get more work together at the very <laughs> least. Um, but yeah, it's it's been great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right. Well, guys, that is going to do it for today's episode of uh, Rolling Bones. Just to let you know what's coming up uh, this week. This Saturday, we're going to do uh, part three of my playthrough of Baldur's Gate. Uh, so we're going back to breakfast at Baldur's Gate for uh, uh, part three. As I'm figuring out this weird world of video game streaming that I uh, am, am stumbling my way through, I hope you guys will join me as I continue in this adventure. Um, next week on Rollin' Bones, this time next week, uh, Mystic Dragon Games are coming back to talk about their Kickstarter uh, project that they've got going on right now. Uh, it, it's, you know, we're, we're in the last few days of that project. I'll let them kind of discuss the ins and outs of that as we enter their last 48 hours. But, you know, we'll be, we'll be talking with them. And then, you know, next Saturday for Danishes and Dragons, I'll do a proper full-on review of the Neverland setting. So that's going to be it for tonight. Uh, as always, you can catch this later on audio and on YouTube. Those go up on Wednesdays. And whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you guys decided to roll your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time.